Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Critics on both the left and right will point to poverty, stagnating wages, skyrocketing inequality, and the end of upward mobility in order to explain how capitalism has failed Americans. But it's important to carefully evaluate each of these claims to see how accurate they are and to place them in the proper context. So today I'm speaking with Scott Winship about the current state of economic opportunity in America. Scott is a resident scholar and the director of poverty studies here at AEI, where he researches social mobility and the causes and effects of poverty. Previously, he served as the executive director of the Joint Economic Committee, where he spearheaded the Social Capital Project. Welcome back to the podcast, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I always love when we can be newsy uh, on the podcast. <laughs> and it just so happens that today, as we're recording this, the uh, Federal Reserve put out uh, their big uh, survey of consumer finances, which they do every few years. And there are a few, a couple of real newsy items in there. Uh, one of them, is that families near the bottom of the income and, and, and wealth distribution have been seeing big gains the past years leading into the, uh, in, in, into the pandemic. Um, and that, that, that is newsy. So first I want to get your take, uh, take on that. I don't know if you had seen that news and kind of get what you thought about it. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to play with the numbers yet. I understand there's a, there's a neat little slick uh, interactive um, tool that you can use now that I'm looking forward to. Um, it really uh, does kind of confirm some other news that, that we've seen recently. Uh, a few weeks ago, there were some new numbers on food security uh, that showed that um, through December, uh, that, that food problems that households have experienced uh, have been on the decline for, uh, for quite a few years now. And then, uh, and then just last week or a couple weeks ago, the new poverty numbers came out um, that showed that poverty was at an all-time low uh, in 2019. Um, and that was true for um, African-Americans. That was true for children. It was true for, uh, uh, for female-headed families with kids. Um, so it, it really is kind of another data point uh, showing that, that uh, pre, pre-lockdown anyway, um, uh, things, things were going really well for, uh, for American families compared with in the past. Do you think people overestimate or underestimate how much poverty remains in America after a half century of the war on poverty? You know, I think that people generally have too negative a view of uh, of the facts on the ground. I think I think they believe there's a lot more poverty than there is. I think they think that middle class household uh, incomes are not as high as they are. Um, uh, kind of across the board, you know, I guess the unemployment figures get revised on a monthly basis. I think people maybe appreciate a little bit more uh, how strong the, uh, the unemployment figures were, say, in February, although even there, you get pushback from folks who say, well, you know, the unemployment rate doesn't really mean anything anymore because there are so many people who aren't even looking for work and they're not counted in that data. And, and there's that's actually a pretty bad argument for reasons we can go into also. But in general, I think people do, do have an overly negative take on things. That's not to say, you know, we can sit back and not worry about about folks. I think we can always do better when it comes to uh, 
um, reducing poverty and increasing upward mobility, which um, the trends on upward mobility are not nearly as uh, as positive as, as some of the other trends. Um, but but there really is this um, declensionist is sort of one of my favorite words that I discovered in a dictionary at, at one point. Um, there really is a declensionist bias, I think, in the in the way that uh, people view how the economy is doing even before even before the pandemic hit. The Fed study also highlighted something that's continued from previous years. To quote reporter Rachel Siegel from the Washington Post, even during the boom time final stretch of a record economic expansion, the typical white family had eight times the wealth of a typical black family in 2019 and five times the wealth of a typical Hispanic family, a sobering reminder of the country's vast inequality before those gaps were widened during the pandemic. How should we think about these gaps? particularly the fact that they persisted across many decades. Yeah, so I agree with you that, you know, it's it's not surprising that, that sort of the, the good news that is in, in some ways new and um, and surprising um, is, is, is further down in the piece. I do think uh, I, I've tended to try to highlight black-white inequalities as well in my research. Um, the, the poverty rate is still quite a bit higher among African-American families than white families. Their big economic mobility differences between blacks and whites. That said, you know, wealth numbers are just really hard to think about. And, and the reason that the wealth, the racial gap in wealth is so large is because uh, levels of wealth are so low uh, among, among African-American families. And to some extent, again, that does reflect real racial inequalities, but to some extent, it also just reflects how, how hard it is to measure wealth. Um, for instance, uh, we count on the debt side. So wealth is just you know, your, your assets less your debts. Um, we count on the debt side student loans, um, which you might think makes a lot of sense. And in a lot of ways it does make a lot of sense, but we don't count on the asset side, the human capital that, uh, that these student loans are, are financing. People don't just take out student loans and incur all this debt without any, without any benefit. Um, if we counted, the human capital that's getting financed by it, those things would, would cancel out to some extent. And where that's important for the wealth gap between blacks and whites is that it would it would raise wealth levels for blacks. And so that the dramatic ratios of eight times, um, you know, the wealth that whites have would look a lot smaller. Um, they, they look so big just because the numbers for blacks are so small. Um, you know, similarly, we count uh, debt, you know, that people take on for car loans, but, we, but at least the survey of consumer finances data doesn't count cars as an asset. Um, so again, it's sort of, there, there are a number of methodological decisions that, that researchers tend to make that tend to drive down wealth levels um, that affects the bottom more than it affects higher up. And that makes the wealth gaps seem a lot bigger than, uh, than maybe they are. I, 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 would, I would guess that most people when they would hear those numbers would say, well, that's because uh, black Americans they don't have as much. They don't have as much money in the market, and they, and they, or, and they don't own uh, uh, homes in as high levels. I think a lot of people might guess that. Are those true? Uh, are they important? They're they're true. There definitely are are inequalities in both of those areas. Um, but home ownership rates, you know, are, are surprisingly high. I think uh, among all groups in the United States, um, uh, you know, there there are a lot of uh, inequalities in terms of. Equities, uh, mostly, you know, for, for most families, those are in the form of 401ks uh, or other other research, uh, other retirement assets. 
Um, but again, you know, the, the measurement ends up being really tricky because most people are going to, so over half the population will rely on social security for over half of their retirement income. Um, if we didn't have social security, which by the way, doesn't get counted as wealth um, or as an asset. Um, if we didn't have social security, a lot more people would save for their own retirement. And again, that would make the levels at the very bottom uh, look higher and, and the ratios would look a lot smaller uh, than, than an eight, eight times difference. Um, so I, I think wealth is just, uh, even for people like me who care a lot about racial inequalities, I think looking at wealth gaps is, um, is just not a super informative way to go. It sure seems like we're talking more about wealth inequality than income inequality these days. So when I hear numbers like the top 1% owns 40% of the wealth and the bottom half only owns 2%, I think I'm supposed to be very alarmed. But how do you think we should react to these numbers? Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, the, there is a lot of inequality in the United States. I, I think um, we've seen, uh, blessedly, not so much this year, but I, I guess last year, um, there was a huge debate um, that took place between uh, three well-known French economists at this point, um, uh, Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, um, arguing that we that we had uh, really massive levels of income concentration and uh, and wealth concentration. And there, uh, Zuckman and and Saez put out a book that got a lot of attention, and and they were pushing really hard some of these claims. And uh, th those claims got pushed back against very strongly uh, by, uh, by a number of folks. Um, and it turns out that a lot of the, the methods that they were using um, really are, are pretty questionable and, and sort of magically all went in the direction of, of overstating uh, perhaps how much inequality there really was. Um, so inequality is, is real. It hasn't increased as much as Piketty, Saez, and Zuckman say. Um, uh, and again, when you sort of shift from income to wealth, you get this real problem of interpretation in terms of what gets counted as wealth and what doesn't get counted as wealth. Um, you know, if, if you don't think social security or even Medicare, uh, should be counted as, as wealth, um, then, you know, what's the rationale for, for them being such a giant part of, of our budget? Um, that is a resource that folks at the bottom disproportionately can rely on um, for retirement security. And uh, yet we don't count it as wealth. And so all of the people who are saving privately for wealth, uh, their savings get counted uh, as assets and as wealth. And it just makes, um, it, it makes the shares uh, look a lot bigger at the top and it makes the inequality look a lot bigger. Than how, how much are those numbers um, result from housing, and very uh, expensive housing, especially in some of these, you know, coastal cities, mm. and where there's debate, they need to build a lot more housing. How much of this is all? It's, it sometimes seems like everything gets back to housing, uh, yeah. which maybe it should, given we had a big housing uh, collapse, a financial collapse, a decade ago. But how much is, it, is this a housing story? Well, so I, I think on the one hand, for say the bottom half uh, of, of American families, housing really is you know, the most important uh, form of wealth, um, just because, you know, middle-class families tend not to uh, invest in these elaborate um, financial instruments or, uh, or sort of invest their money in hedge funds or things like that. Um, on the other hand, at the top, 
the housing uh, wealth um, obviously is is much higher than lower down, but but also the wealth from other forms um, are also you know quite a bit higher than they are lower down. So housing isn't as important at the top, um, given that the top does invest so much heavily in uh, in inequities and things like that. So I don't think that the 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 wealth inequality story overall. Um, is just an artifact, for instance, of the fact that you have a lot of wealthy people living in San Francisco and um, other places that have high costs of living. It, it would, it would, it would still be pretty high regardless. Um, but again, you know, the, the the sort of question that is begged by all of this is, you know, whether that's a problem or not. Um, you know, what what is a level of wealth? In a I, I, I I don't right. So I don't know what I'm supposed to again. I don't know what I'm supposed to make of that number. I guess I could compare it. You know that you know one percent on forty percent, whatever the numbers. I guess I could compare it to to other countries. Maybe in I have no idea. You, you might know these off the top of your head. In Sweden, is it the top one percent own twenty percent? Yet I have a feeling that the same people who are angry that the top one percent own forty percent here, if that number was one percent own twenty percent, that still seems like it still seems like a lot, and it'd yeah. still be really angry. So I That's so I, I again so like what is the right number? Right, that's exactly right. And and the other way to think about it is, you know, what if we had the golden days of, you know, 1979 uh, before the evil uh, President Reagan took office and before, um, you know, the Piketty Saez uh, inequality numbers start rising. You know, there was a ton of wealth inequality, you know, by the same way of measuring things back in 1979. And as you say, there's there's a ton in Sweden. In fact, if I'm remembering right, I, I think the the cross national disparities in wealth inequality. Um, are not as great as the income inequality disparities between countries. Um, so yeah, it's 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 really hard to know what the right number or what the just number would be uh, for what share of wealth the top one percent should have. The dominant economic narrative in the media among politicians on the left and populist types on the right is that inequality has exploded, wages have gone nowhere for forty or fifty years. And upward mobility is worse today than it was for our parents. Now, we've already talked about inequality, but what about those other two pillars of the argument, wage stagnation and economic mobility? Yeah, I mean, to a remarkable extent, the whole the whole narrative is, is really wrong. Um, so our colleague Michael Strain um, has, a, has a great book out, uh, The American Dream is Not Dead, where he really focuses on um, earnings trends, for instance, since uh, the early 1990s. And the story since then, you know, is is pretty uh, is is really good. Um, I mean, wage increases since you know the bottom of the of the 1990s recession uh, of over a quarter at the median. Now there there is this there's there's sort of this lagged impression that that men's pay, for instance, uh, has just done terribly for a long long time. And it's it's so interesting because there was a period where men's where men's pay really did stagnate, um, but it was from roughly 1973 to roughly 1994. Um, you know that is not the era that millennials or Gen Z graduated into. Um, it, it in fact you know hit the boomers um, more more than it hit even Generation X. Um, and so so that's a narrative that just. Uh, has never been updated. It was sort of propagated by a bunch of researchers um, 30 years ago, and, uh, and, and, and people have just kind of continued talking that way. The economic mobility story, um, you know, you can make a more 
uh, plausible case uh, for disappointment um, in, in two ways. Like the, the first way would be relative mobility. So, so being able to start at the bottom and end up in the middle or at the top, um, regardless of kind of what's happening to everybody else. Uh, that hasn't gotten worse, but it, ha it also hasn't gotten better, which is a pretty surprising result given how much poverty has fallen over, over the last 50 years. Um, and then there's this other way of looking at mobility called absolute mobility, which is, which is essentially just, are you better off than your parents were, um, regardless of if you start at the bottom, end up in the middle, vice versa. Um, and, and Raj Chetty's research famously has shown that fewer and fewer people over time end up better off than their parents. Well, that's true. On the other hand, you know, by my own estimates, something like, and by Michael's estimates too, something like 70% of the population still ends up better off than their parents do. So this is not uh, a dramatic decline to the point where everybody's worse off. Second, you know, there are real trade-offs between uh, having a, a, a bigger share of the population be better off than their parents on the one hand, and just absolute levels of, of, uh, of material comfort on the other hand. You know, China has higher absolute, absolute mobility than the United States does. But I'm not sure any of us would trade places uh, with the Chinese. Kids who grow up in the bottom fifth have much more upward absolute mobility uh, in terms of being better off than their parents than people in the top fifth. But I don't think many of us would choose to be raised in the bottom fifth rather than the top fifth. Um, there was higher absolute mobility in, in 1945 uh, than there is today. But how many of us would choose the living standards that folks in 1945 had? So that's the best case that you can make as a declensionist that, that things have, have gotten worse. And it's just not a very strong case. If we really want a lot of people moving up and down, people have to move down too. And the people at the top don't want their kids to move down. So we don't hear much about banning SAT prep courses or making it harder for people to get their kids great internships at their friend's company. But what do you think we can do or should do about that part of the mobility issue? I think at the margin there, there are, I would say that there are a group of, of, of people at the top who started there and remain there, um, you know, who, who let's just say it's probably not the most economically efficient thing that they're still there. Um, and, and here you can sort of talk a little bit about legacy admissions as Richard Reeves does. Right. Right. And think those are a little bit, the importance of those are a little overstated because lots of times those kids are, you know, they've got great test scores anyway. Um, uh, you know, there are things that happen like, say, I don't know, a real estate developer, uh, you know, hiring, hiring their children as consultants. Um, so th there are some, uh, some ways at the margin that we could, uh, that we can imagine reducing upward mobility from the top, uh, in, in a, not necessarily that, um, controversial way. The way I tend to think about it is a little bit different, which is that if we had, you know, some, some world of, of truly equal opportunity, um, which we'll, we'll never get this world, we probably wouldn't want this world. Um, but if we did, you can imagine a world in which everybody was pushing their kids so hard uh, to get ahead and to get one of those coveted, uh, you know, top fifth spots in adulthood, um, that essentially we boost outcomes for everybody just because of the nature of, of everybody competing. Um, and it becomes close to a coin flip who ends up in the top fifth um, just beca because the, the competition to get there is so strong and 
the opportunity has, has been redistributed to the extent that it's more equal than it is. Uh, and then, you know, you would, you would end up with greater uh, downward mobility from the top and greater upward mobility from the bottom, but everybody would probably be better off by virtue of having uh, a more competitive race there. Um, and uh, in a lot of ways, that would be more economically efficient in terms of economic growth um, than, than the world we've got now. Um, you've just come over to AI to be our new director of poverty studies. So what do you want people to understand about poverty in America today and what we should be doing about it? Yeah, I think um, there's there's a lot that's uh, there's a lot of blind spots, I would say, on both the left and the right. I think on the left and, and parts of the right, increasingly, some of our friends at other at other think tanks um, there, there's not this appreciation for the extent to which we really have dramatically lowered poverty um, in the United States. Um, there was a great paper put out by um, Richard Burkhauser and Kevin Corinth um, and some others. Uh, Rich and, and Kevin have had AEI affiliations in the past. Uh, and they basically said, all right, let's, let's take the 1963 poverty line um, that was drawn, and uh, which showed that 19.5% of the population was poor, uh, was living under that line. Fairly arbitrary line, but, um, but that's, that's what they found. Um, and what Rich and his co-authors do is they say, let's, let's fix these measurement problems uh, that the official poverty, poverty measure has. And let's see what happens to poverty today if you just take that line that was drawn in 1963 and, and you correctly measure inflation and income uh, over the ensuing uh, 60 years. And when you do that, it turns out that about 2% of the population today lives below that line. Um, so that's a reduction from basically 20% of the population to 2% of the population. Um, I don't think people have, have really uh, have really faced up to the extent. And what, and what explains that decline? So I think um, a couple things. You know, economic growth is probably the first and foremost um, the, the most important factor. Um, the same forces that were pushing incomes up uh, over this period, um, and then the safety net does come into play. Uh, in the 1960s, you see a dramatic drop in poverty among the elderly because of social security expansions. Um, and then you see drops uh, among, say, families with kids over the years after that. That really didn't, uh, that, that got a much bigger boost after welfare reform in 1996, which a lot of people, including myself at the time, you know, thought was going to be a disaster, but turned out to be really the most effective uh, piece of uh, poverty legislation um, for families with kids. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so we've made fantastic progress in terms of reducing poverty. However, um, the story with the safety net is complicated because it's easy to push people below a poverty line, just some arbitrary line that you draw. You just give people more cash um, and, and mechanically, you're going to have fewer people that live, live below a line. But at the same time we do that, um, we can create perverse incentives for folks. Um, that might mean incentives not to work, incentives not to get married, incentives not to save. Um, incentives not to invest in your own human capital. And so it may very well be that our safety net, which has expanded greatly over the last 50 years, has simultaneously reduced poverty, but prevented upward mobility from increasing. Um, and that's, that's really where I think the next frontier for people who care about the poor really is. It's, a, it's an increasing upward mobility from the bottom 
um, on the one hand. And, and then the other part of the American dream that, that, that isn't economic is, is social, um, revolves around all these indicators of, of community and family life and social capital. Um, those indicators have all really taken a dive over the last 50 years, whether it's family stability or um, you know, doing things with your neighbors or going to church or participating in voluntary organizations or having trust in the government or in big business, pretty much across the board, those have all gotten worse. And, and to my mind, that's, that's the real set of trends that's behind, say, the opioids crisis, which, which you know, people mistakenly attribute to terrible wage growth over the last 30 years, which, which as we mentioned, didn't actually happen. Um, so that, that's, I, I guess it would be sort of um, acknowledging the progress we've made uh, and then, but then shifting uh, what our focus ought to be, which is in improving some of these lingering problems that could be byproducts of, of the way that we reduced poverty. I'm going to wrap up with two questions. First, do you think policymakers care less about the importance of work than they did, say, 15 years ago? I tend to hear more about universal basic incomes and income as a human right these days from the left, for instance. And second, do you think the destruction of social capital that we've seen is because of American capitalism being too cutthroat and dynamic with too much automation and offshoring? Those are two questions I need you to answer them both quickly, which I know is wildly unfair of me. <laughs> no, those are both great questions. Um, on the first one, you know, I think the left just doesn't take seriously the possibility that that giving people cash without any strings attached to it could have negative repercussions. Um, I'm not sure they that they ever did, um, uh, or that enough enough of them ever did. Uh, but I think the popularity of, of things like UBI um, or expansions to the safety net generally, uh, the the left just tends to view those as unambiguous goods, and that there you know could be no trade offs um, to to being more generous. And that maybe is is the main line that divides conservatives from liberals these days on poverty policy. And you know, it's I wouldn't say the right necessarily can point to a, a, an overwhelming body of research that um, that shores it up. Uh, although you know, you can look at welfare reform. I think um, where um, employment among single mothers increased dramatically, uh, and, and among the the single mothers with the least education increased dramatically around welfare reform uh, and never went back down to the levels uh, that it was before. And poverty uh, fell and never rose to the level that, uh, that it was before welfare reform as well. So I, I think welfare reform gives us the best evidence that we've got that some of the assumptions of conservatives before reform, that, that it was the welfare was creating a poverty trap, those, um, those, those really proved uh, to, to be real. Um, and that was discovered through state experimentation before welfare reform, and then through the 1996 law. Um, on the second question about social too much, capital, too much, too much churn, too much, too much dynamism in the American economy. It just ru it ruins families, it ruins communities, it ruins all these social capital networks that you value. Yeah, I, I, my view is that most of the declines in social capital that have happened over time relate very strongly. Uh, to the increase in affluence um, that the United States has experienced. Uh, when um, we don't need our neighbors as much, um, then we tend to just make purchases from the market uh, for things like childcare um, rather than relying on each other. Um, 
as we get rich as a society, we can afford a more generous safety net. Um, and, and that has ended up uh, being damaging to family stability, for instance. Um, women have, uh, thankfully, a lot more economic opportunities than they did 60 years ago. Um, uh, but, but sort of as more wives have entered the workforce, um, that has depleted not only the number of homemakers out there, but if you think of, of uh, we used to have these neighborhoods of community makers uh, who weren't working as well. Um, it didn't have to be the case that we lost all of them. Men could have uh, worked less and invested more in communities, um, but we didn't choose to do that. And so the result was um, uh, a lot, a lot less, uh, a lot weaker community life over time. So I tend to think uh, that, that these declines really reflect affluence, not so much um, uh, the ravages of capitalism, for instance. Um, these are these are trade-offs that we've chosen and that people don't like to think about uh, that, that we've chosen some things and, and not chosen other things. And in, instead they tend to want to blame evil villains uh, such as American style capitalism or, uh, or what have you. Um, I, I, I think it's just, uh, it's a nature of sort of the problems that rich countries tend to have. My guest today has been Scott Winship. Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast and adding to the stock of human knowledge. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Always a pleasure. 